todo el mundo. Welcome to the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. I'm your host, Stacey Lane Wilson, author of the Rock and Roll Nightmares book series and director of the documentary The Ventures, Stars on Guitars. This is your destination for all things rock, where the interviewees include musicians, authors, historians, filmmakers, and more. And now, on to the show. My guest today is Stacy Davidson, who I met years ago when I was reviewing movies for Horror.com and Dread Central. His film, Sweatshop, really impressed me because he had a hand in everything, writing, directing, cinematography, effects, and editing. The music is also a huge part of Sweatshop because it takes place at a rave. Um, and since we're coming up on the 15th anniversary of its release, we're going to talk about that and also the importance of music in horror films in general. Welcome to the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast, Stacy. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. So as I mentioned, it'll be the 15th anniversary of Sweatshop's release next year. That's um, impossible. <laughs> no, possible. I know. <laughs> We're, we're still young, Stacy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the movie is still streaming everywhere. Um, what have been some of your favorite or most surprising responses to it over the years? Um, well, like, it's it's really been fun. That's been, like, of all the things I've worked on, that one, for some reason, there's just so many, like, amazing, uh, constantly, like, even throughout the years, we're always getting people just like messaging us either they'll message me or they'll message jeremy Sumrall who played the beast uh and he'll share it with me and we'll just be like oh my god this is crazy people still talking about it today but like the two things that stick out in my head are like there was one guy who just a few years ago apparently made a, a steel like recreation of the hammer oh wow <laughs> i don't know I don't know. I mean, there's no way it was. I don't think you could pick it up unless it was maybe used aluminum. I, I only saw photos, but it was metal and it looked amazing. And we were just like, oh, my God. <laughs> um, so that was really cool to see. And um, we we had I, I think the thing that just sticks with me the most is when we screened it at the New York City Horror Film Festival. Um, it was screening at at the Tribeca, which I was so excited. I couldn't believe my movies like screening the Tribeca 
but like the, it's a, if you've been there it's like really small like this is not a big theater and um you know we filled it uh with uh, just a few of the like main cast that we brought and there were like you know the two producers and me, well i guess there were three producers there and me so you know we had a small entourage of our people and then the rest of it was just you know uh people coming in from the film festival unsuspecting victims to the gore yes yes <laughs> and uh we we oh it was great because we handed out um uh like glow sticks you know and so we have like photos of like glow, just of this ocean of glow sticks and it was really fun That's but awesome. uh, we had like 70 people that we had to turn away because there were just so many people in line we we're like oh this is so cool um but there were these two girls right in front and and we were they were like right in front of the line of of people at like they had just gotten cut off and they were so like oh we we wanted to see it so bad and uh we felt like so bad we were like you know what we we could just give up our seats so like i think two of the producers and and i all gave up our seats i think i, I like i watched it from like the aisle which is probably like a fire code hazard but hmm. <laughs> uh, i just kind of like yeah so we just we gave up our seats so that we could get a couple more people in and these two girls which i just thought was so cool that they they were like no we we can't we this was like the main movie we want to see and we we're like okay okay you know we'll we'll make sure you get in so we got them in and then like afterwards at the at the bar uh like there's a little bar behind the theater and um like in the in the building and so there's a little reception afterwards and, and I was talking to them and they were like, oh, yeah, we saw it when it screened at the something. Uh, I think it screened at a college in New York, like maybe a few months earlier or a year earlier or something. Oh, they hustled you. Yeah. And I was like, wait, you guys have already seen it. But, you know, I wasn't even mad because I thought about it. And I'm <laughs> like, they've they've already seen it. And they still like busted ass to get down to the theater and, <laughs> and see it again. Yeah. Like that's one thing if somebody sees your movie because they're excited to see it. But then, you know, maybe they walk out and they're like it was all right but like that's to, to have that kind of excitement after they've seen it i was like actually that's pretty cool yeah sure is uh well as an independent filmmaker myself um i know that we often have to wear a lot of hats ourselves um but you really went full rodriguez here uh to paraphrase tropic thunder um, <laughs> you never go full Rodriguez. <laughs> now was that the initial plan or did that just kind of happen out of necessity and budget yeah, yeah, no, it's totally uh, necessity and budget. I the kind of movies that I usually end up making, and it's not just my movies. Like most of the movies I've worked on too, just in Houston, um, it's it's like you don't have the budget or the time to do it right. And if we had unions and stuff, like we can, we never could have made that movie the way that we did. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, like I, I don't, I don't want to ask people to you know work crazy hours and and do like several people's jobs or you know in in a if you're if you're shooting in like louisiana or you're shooting in new york or la or whatever um georgia you're going to be working with crews this is what they do day in and day out every day you know every week and they go from one show to the next and and if they just like threw themselves at the work you know and just like killed themselves to get every movie made the way that you know enthusiasts often will like they would have no work-life balance they would have no their quality of life would be terrible and i really like this is something i'm really glad you asked this question because i think a lot of indie filmmakers need to keep this in mind that for you know people who do this for a living 
it's it's their line of work it's what they do and you know if you want them to kill themselves for your movie the next guy you know the next production will do the same thing and the next and the next and they'll be burnt out by the time they're like you know 27 or whatever <laughs> right um, they'll join the 27 club yeah totally and so um yeah so with that in mind i mean when i'm when i do these kind of moves i really i don't know how to do them except to just do it myself you know like i'm i'm gonna light it i'm gonna shoot it um i direct it i, I wrote the script i uh, well, I wrote the script based on uh, uh, like a, a a concept draft by uh, Ted Gagan, and um, so like it was it was like we just kind of did everything between me and a few other people, tiny crew of just buddies of mine mostly. Uh, I mean, all all of them were just like friends of mine or friends of friends who wanted to to help, and not all of them were even there every day. It was just it's kind of you 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 do what you can, and if you go into a production like that. And you do you can't do everything yourself and you're just you're counting on a cinematographer and you're counting on, you know, uh, people to come in and, and uh, you know, light the scene. I'm not just talking about grips, but like someone who, you know, maybe the cinematographer doesn't just, you know, th there are there are kind of high level jobs that you can't just get your buddy down the street, whatever. Hey, come right. help us out to do. And if you're counting on that uh, and you don't have a lot of money, then you're either going to have to exploit somebody for for their for their you know their their skills or um you're you're gonna get stuck and you'll never be able to finish it and so you know if you're gonna work that way i say you know learn how to do it yourself and do it yourself get something made but you know the long-term goal if you want to make a bunch of movies really should be to get to the point where you can raise enough budget to pay people comfortably you know so like i'm totally into the robert the robert Rodriguez's book got me started totally into that kind of you know just grab a camera and shoot filmmaking and that's been most of my life but like um you know always weigh the consequences of that kind of filmmaking before you you do it I, I yeah say. that's good that book is called Reb, uh, rebel without a crew for those mm -hmm. who are interested amazing uh book. yeah so uh since sweatshop takes place uh at an underground rave the music does play an essential role um, as a slasher, it also has to punctuate the suspense and the brutality. So can you explain how you did that as a director on the set and then later as the editor? Yeah, you know, I was thinking about this. Um, I, I, you know, I, I know that there there were like two different kinds of musical scenes uh, in Sweatshop, you know, so some of them were literally there's music playing and someone's dancing to it. And um when things like that were happening, we had, we generally, we knew exactly what was going to be playing already. Like we knew we already had the song picked out. And so we were playing it on the set. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, that was sort of synchronous, you know, filming, but um, you know, the, the rest of it is, is really something that just happens in post. It's like, you know, you shoot something as gory and brutal and whatever as you can, or as suspenseful as you can. And then in the case of music in the background, I mean, obviously you have the score, which which is one layer of music. And that's Dwayne Cathy did the score. And, and honestly, Dwayne's score worked alongside the sort of uh, kind of like retro um, synth stingers that we had uh, two other people do. Um, we had Trevor, this guy Trevor and uh, DJ Hawes uh you know got in there and and um made all of these like really cool super 
like 80s sounding like um halloween style or um you know like stingers and um actually halloween didn't do it too much it did it a little bit but there were later you know slasher movies that just went crazy with those yeah. like sense stingers. and i that's what i wanted because the idea for me was always that like somebody just found a sweatshop you know and it was like shot in like 1988 or something and they forgot to release it and it's just like oh here put it out <laughs> and <laughs> so that that's why it has that tone that's just like what is this is this an 80s movie that doesn't feel like it's following any modern sensibilities you know it felt really dated and that was the idea but um so you know uh between that and then what Dwayne was doing which was i mean hit my instructions to him were just you know make it as carpentry as possible and uh uh, he he loved that, but I also know that like uh, Skinny Puppy was a huge uh, influence of his in general and uh, in that soundtrack. Yeah, uh, I could definitely hear that. Yeah, so uh, it was a lot of that like Skinny Puppy influence in there, and um, and there was a lot of um, you know that when you when you choose to go the the John Carpenter route, you're going to have music that kind of sets almost the pace for the movie. Um, but then the other half of it was the the like the like the songs, the rock and roll, the or the the you know um, like retro wave or, or not retro wave, the uh, dark wave, you know stuff that's mm-hmm. playing in the background, and that was really cool because I found that it, it became this thing that as as characters left the group, I could lower the you know the volume and push the reverb, and I I remember I had this had this reverb uh, effect that sounded like it was like you were just echoing throughout a stadium. And it was so natural as I really leaned on that and it made the place look bigger or feel bigger, you know, and, and, Mm -hmm. and cavernous, but it also gave you the sense the characters were separated and getting further, further away from the group, the safety of, of the group. And that became like a, uh, it was almost like another element, like lighting, you know, it's, it's like, as the, you know as they became more and more in danger uh, as they wandered or off you know and, and they were alone you would kind of hear the echo the music get more and echo get pushed further and further back in the background and more echoey and yeah, that was really fun yeah the attention to detail with all that is something that i do remember noticing and um, yeah it was like a character almost yeah definitely. but the, like uh, the, the the other thing the elephant in the room obviously is the 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 begin the rave scene right so mm-hmm. that's a funny thing because you know when we shot that it, we had it all figured out it was supposed to be it was actually supposed to be um this shit will fuck you up <laughs> uh was supposed to be the song and we we shot it with that in mind and it was in the cut for a long time and it's just one of those things like i got introduced to uh you know the the comedy christ guy and you know and he was like oh yeah cool and you know he's at a show but he's friend of a friend, whatever. And and we're, we talked about movies for a while, like hours before the show, you know, and, and it was a great meeting and he was really cool and supportive, whatever. And then when it, it came time to do it, uh, it was sort of like, here, talk to, you know, my manager. And it was like, ah, mm-hmm. yeah. um, <laughs> yep. and they wanted like a lot of money. And I, I just, I just want to say D Snyder wanted less money than he did. Um, <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. um, because uh, we we almost paid the, to put um, uh, the Suspiria version. I believe it was the Suspiria version of Burn in Hell into the the trailer, just the trailer. Uh-huh. Uh, and and we ended up not doing it because it would have been a lot of money to do that. But we just really like we almost did that. Um, 
And uh, but anyway, uh, so, yeah, we get to the end of the, the movie. Right. And, and, and it's the most important scene. It's the rave scene. And and a lot of violence has to happen. And it's like you said, you know, you this, you've got to punctuate this brutality with music that that is fitting for it. And now I'm it's got it's kind of blue sky because I'm like, I got to replace this. What am I going to do with it? And um, we toyed around with a few different pieces. And it's it's really interesting how you could cut something that was uh, more hard hitting and bassy, you know, and, and that kind of would punctuate the violence. Or you could do something like I remember at one point just playing around with different songs. I had um, uh, I think it was uh, Marilyn. Uh, actually, I can't remember the uh, the band name anymore. But anyway, it was a uh, more of a melodic um, song, and it was interesting how that affected the scene. Because okay, you know, does the does the music play against the drama by or go the other way by you know kind of being melodic and whatever and then the the violence is so oh my god uh in your face and um in the end i decided it was just cooler to have it be like really really hardcore um thumpy you know um chunky music and i couldn't find anything that sounded like that so we actually we ended up creating it ourselves that oh wow yeah final track is actually a track i just produced myself and all of the the bass uh, or all of the percussion all of the the you know what like the um what would normally be like synth beats uh mm -hmm. that that underlie the whole piece are actually all um like they're from my uh audio um library my like of uh, uh foley and sound design you know you have like libraries of sound effects and i had this whole cd full of uh industrial machines <laughs> like oh wow and, <laughs> that's grinding you know and conveyor belts and, and I your ingenuity there yeah I, I i was like i want this to sound like you know this is the end of sweatshop right i want it to feel mm -hmm. like metal and like this guy is wearing a, a welding mask i mean yeah, i wanted it to embody his the feel of this character in this this environment and so it's it's all you know real uh clunky chunky loud metal you know whatever and and uh and then um trevor schultz uh, uh or trevor schultis uh mispronounced his name there um rest in peace he passed away a few years ago Aww. um but he came in and uh he had he had done all those like cool stingers for us he ended up doing like the synth layer and he brought that in in one day he brought that in we laid it down it sounded really great I kind of it, what I have going with my weird sounds wasn't really at all what he was working on, but they, they married together just perfectly. And then uh, and then uh, Spencer Self, who was my um, main grip, and he is always my main grip on everything I do. Um, we like I always say, if I only have one person, if it's just me and one other person and we, we have to make a whole movie that way, it would be Spencer. And uh, he came down and played the guitar. So all the the like metal guitar, you know, thrashing on it is all it's just him standing in my, you know, editing room, just playing it. And, uh, and we just recorded that. And then I put this layer of weird like uh, sound clips from like B horror movies that I knew were public domain. Hmm. <laughs> so if you listen to the track, um, you'll hear like all kinds of familiar, weird, like sound clips from. And, and it's, it's like you can kind of hear them in the movie, although they're they're more echoey but um but yeah so in that case it was the music itself was shaped by the violence on screen instead of kind of the other way around okay well uh <laughs> you know it makes me want to go back and listen to it now it's on prime i know where else is it playing 
Oh, sweatshop. That's a good question. <laughs> oh, uh, people have to Google it, I guess. Well, it is goodness. on Prime. It is on Prime. It, it was on Redbox for years. And um, I, I was the coolest thing. I was <laughs> I was uh, streaming. I used to stream uh, sculpting and stuff on, on Twitch years ago. And uh, this guy was asking me about it. And I mentioned it. And he looked it up on Redbox and he's or, or on, uh, sorry, on, on uh, Netflix. And he said, um, well, I'm going to stream it right now. And he just streamed the whole movie. And then I was giving him commentary live. Oh, you know, wow. on my stream. It was really fun. <laughs> Talk about a personal touch there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, earlier I asked you to list some examples of your favorite horror movies or shows that have great music. Um, so let's start with one that's also a favorite of mine, uh, Dario Argento's Tenebrae. Um, and while some members of Goblin did that score, it is a total departure from Suspiria, which had come out about five years before. Um, Tenebrae has like a synth pop or kind of a Euro disco vibe to it. And Kim Wilde has a song on the soundtrack. Yeah, it, it's it, it really is pretty different. But it, it, but it, I, to me, it's kind of the signature sound of Giallo. And I think that what what sets uh, what sets Suspiria apart is that it's sort of, yeah, there are some Giallo elements, but it's so um it's a dark fantasy you know it's all these other things and very eerie very eerie and and creepy in a in a supernatural kind of way and um so goblin's music was heavily themed it was just you know this i love those movies where there's just a theme burning into your head and you're hearing it throughout the whole movie and they kind of to me they with tenebrae tenebrae to me is almost like the perfect boilerplate Jallo film that I show people when I want to show them, like, this is what Jallo is. And it's like the, to me, like one of the most Jallo things when it comes to music is um, just whenever you hear fun, you know, poppy, bum, bum, bam, bam, or bam, you know, music coming up, <laughs> it's like something violent's going to happen. Like, There's about to be some serious gore guys. This is going to get fun. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's so crazy that like they, they sort of treat it that way. It's not like, Oh no, we're, we're, you know, with the, the the uh piccolo whatever the strings and the and the psycho or whatever no it's it's exactly the it's a 180 it's it's uh we're gonna go with like really fun poppy music and that's your cue that something really fun's about that really something really violent and horrible is about to happen um but like the the thing about tenebrae is that it it had the uh the guts to just i swear he just pauses the movie like at some point and just does like i mean i don't even know how long it is like 10 minutes or something um just sweep of the camera uh, you know around the house and it's all it's like a music video it's just i mean you feel like you're suddenly on mtv and mm -hmm. you're seeing the, the the camera just somebody had a neat idea for music video where the camera just floats around and you're watching people walk around but of course this is his take on the pov of the killer shot you know so you're watching not not literally because he's not flying, but I mean you're definitely in that POV of the killer in that frame of mind. As he, it it could have been the shaky cam in the bushes, look you know, and the heavy breathing and looking through the window. But instead, he did the most stylish, uh, you know, killer peeking through the windows scene I think in the history of film. And uh, until he you you know he finally enters the house, and you never really know when you know the pov is him you know and it's almost like in one shot it's not not him and then suddenly it is him it's um it's it's just magical it's it's one of my favorite moments in horror 
It is a great film. And John Saxon is in that. And he was also in A Nightmare on Elm Street. And the next movie that you chose was A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors. And of course, Dokken comes to mind. Absolutely. (laughs) That was 1987. I was thinking about it and I, you know, I, I've always considered myself kind of like a, as a teenager, I was a metal head and I liked metal. I didn't really get into metal until like my later teens. And I, I, I really think that there's a strong possibility <laughs> that my entire love of metal started with uh, Nightmare on Elm Street three. So it might be that Nightmare on Elm Street got me into metal as opposed to, Oh, this is, has a great metal soundtrack. Um, but like, uh not only does it have this amazing music video at the end but it's got like other docking music like throughout the movie like the main character she'll be listening to the radio and it'll be you know it'll be some other docking song um i I just i love that i guess they just you know they signed a deal with docking and so they threw a bunch of their music in but like it's one of the things that when i go back and watch that movie um for one it brings me back to the 80s more than you know anything and it's it's just it's it's like it's like that that warm feeling of home that you know these guys like oh man you know like docking oh it's you know it's it just makes it so endearing it makes the whole movie feel uh i don't know like like i'm i'm just you know 17 again in my you know bedroom with you know like nintendo posters and and and, yeah there's uh, a music video kind of a a few of them in that one because of all the dream sequences and there's that uh, almost harryhausen-esque sort of claymation and yeah yeah the the the, it was the, the fantasy element was so great and i and one of the things about that movie that uh that i always point out is that i just i mean i like I, I I love Heather Langenkamp and I think she's she did an amazing job um, in the original film, obviously. And I love that um, she came back to kind of, um, get, you know, in, in the or lend a, a bit of like air of legitimacy to, you know, the sequels. But um, th- there's just Patricia Arquette. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could tell why she's going to be a big star just watching her performance in that movie. And it, it is to me, I think. I, you know, not not to like play favorites uh, among any of the the leads of those movies, but it is to me the the um, the signature moment of of uh, Nightmare on Elm Street where I feel like they finally kind of had um, a, a seriously like uh, mainstream audience, you know, level like gripping uh, lead, just pulling me into the film, and I I, I just. I don't know. It just it, there's there's so much magic to that film from the the crazy fantasy effects that I think um, blow away anything in the first two movies, and I don't really think we're really matched in in the later ones in a way. Even though there was lots of crazy wacky stuff in the later ones, it wasn't. It was often it would let, let it would lean more toward funny and less towards just um, kind of wild imagination. What can we come up with? The girl getting like smashed into the tv um welcome to prime time bitch yeah i will never (laughs) see a hanging tv the same right and then the the guy the the guy who makes the puppets being walked around like a puppet is just i i mean that's that's like nightmare stuff that just sticks in your head forever it's amazing yeah it's fun and sadly there is no more prime time it's all prime time now because we can just (laughs) get everything on demand whenever we want it yeah no one will get any of that that no 
true. Um, well, you mentioned another one of my all-time favorites, John Carpenter's The Thing. Um, and there are a lot of directors who understand music and use it to great effect, like uh, Martin Scorsese or Quentin Tarantino. Um, Carpenter is one of those few who does score his own films, but he decided to not go that route with The Thing. You know, I, I, um, I, I think I was a really big fan of the thing for at least a couple of years before it actually actually realized that that wasn't his music. And I was so awestruck. I mean, I just couldn't believe it because I'm like, any more quoting. Are you kidding me? Because like I had seen, you know, the spaghetti Westerns uh, at least 30 times by then. Mm -hmm. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I had heard his music in in my head. I I had his music in my. That was back when we used to actually have MP3s. Um, but I I he his his stuff was in my playlist, and I was already a big fan. But I just could not understand where this came from. I'm like, are you kidding? He, he, to me, he he channeled uh, that John Carpenter spirit, and it it felt very similar to um, uh, the kind of um, sort of marching uh um pace setting feel of the music in halloween you can you can really kind of separate film scores into uh you know different groups and um i think there's there's people who will score to the action i know that's something that john corporate carpenter hated like the mickey mousing and the bernard herman and all of that it just playing to every little action in the in the movies like mm -hmm. you're kind of dancing around the picture um and john carpenter did something very very different he did the complete opposite of that it's like his music set the pace of of the movie so no you know if you're getting too excited or your heart's racing too fast his music would start up and it was like thump 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 and you you just had to kind of you you were stuck in that pace that tempo you know you couldn't go any faster you couldn't slow down you you were just kind of like um in this feeling of uh inevitable kind of being pushed toward the the, the a ledge or something and um and his his move his music very much set the pace for you know uh, the action set the pace for everything that happened and was not at all in the background and uh, I thought it was amazing that Ennio Morricone was able to recreate that or to, you know, to nail that feel um, in, in, in the thing. And I, to, to this day, I just, when I hear it, I feel like it's, God, it's so Carpenter. He must've loved that score. <laughs> he must've been like, how did you do that? <laughs> yeah. Uh, it really is very effective and it's so chilling and, you know, no pun intended, but it, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, the next movie is a French film by Alexander Aja, High Tension. Um, when I saw it at a press screening in 2003, I was super impressed and I caught all the homages. Of course, he was a big fan of uh, Maniac 1980. Uh, his movies are not only brutal, but they're beautiful. And uh, the music is top notch. Uh, Francoise used uh, Ch Chanfrault, I think that's how you pronounce it. I'm probably butchering it. Um, he also scored Aja's The Hills Have Eyes remake, and he did the music for Inside, um, but he passed away a few years back. So um, 
Let's go into high tension, though. Can you single out a certain scene where the music is essential to the horror in that? Because a few scenes do stand out for me, like that maniac homage in that gas station bathroom or the scene mm-hmm. on the stairs. Is there one that stands out for you? Well, yeah, I mean, it's 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 in there. There are those moments. Um, but it's, it's interesting how how he the, the music is so minimalist or minimalistic throughout most of the movie. Most of the movie does not lean on music. There will be these like very subtle beds of sort of sound uh, going on, you know, to kind of move things along, but um, it's mostly a very quiet film. And it's, it's, it's almost, it almost feels like you're watching. I mean, like when I watch, uh, when I saw um, um, a quiet place, like I, I, I felt like this is really similar to the, the, the tension I felt when I watched High Tension is um, the quiet is really what uh, pulls you in and, and makes you, you hear every little noise, every footstep, every every little thing. And it's it just puts you on edge. Um, and then the music is so much more effective when it does come along. Um, and I, I was really I was thinking a lot about, you know, his use of songs in the movie uh, as part of character because like we don't hear a whole lot of music in the movie except when you know she's like of course listening to music in her headphones early Mm -hmm. on and we see that obviously music is very tied to her you know her passion and um then we don't really you know get into to that again until i think uh until toward the end and it's like one of those moments that I swear I just keep seeing moments like this in old movies. I love it where it's like the director just decided, you know, I'm going to put a music video here and <laughs> let's just forget about what's going on. And I'm going to start cutting to, you know, cutting the picture to, to, the, to the song and we're going to play out a song like in its entirety or, you know, mostly in its entirety. And that scene where she's in the car and it's like, you hear the muse, you know, like song just kind of n- newborn uh, kind of start coming up and, you hear the little chimes in the beginning and then it just starts blasting and it becomes like the soundtrack of that, you know, car chase. And it's not really a chase. It's just kind of like she's following him, but it's like, she's, it underlines her determination. And it's interesting because it's, it's um, I feel like it shows us how music is really a part of her, um, her passion and her, whatever drives her and uh which is a very cool and relatable thing and you know makes you kind of get into her head uh as she's like you know chasing this thing and yeah which that is, scene is almost kind of like it reminded me of duel a little bit mm, yeah 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 i mean uh, that movie is the like whole truck of reminded me. yeah <laughs> but uh but it's also just uh Aja, you know, he's got his stamp on it too. But I think that was the first movie of his that I saw and really been a fan of his ever since. Me too. It was also, I think, the first time I heard Muse. And I'm like, whoa, this band is awesome. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and and he he just, he pulls such a great gotcha uh, in that movie because it turns out that, you know, as he's pulling you into the head of this character, you find out that, that her, you know, inside her head is like the last place you want to be. <laughs> this is true. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty clever. Um, yeah. So now we're going to segue into a popular TV series, Stranger Things. Now, this series has done a lot to boost the careers of artists who were popular in the 90s, like Kate Bush and Metallica, though I would say Metallica is 
popularity never really waned, but um, it's not just as a reminder to their fans, but a whole new younger generation. So um, in your opinion, why do you think this music still holds up and why are people still using it in their films and TV shows and not, you know, maybe giving newer artists a chance? Well, I, I think that uh, in a case of Stranger Things, it's it's definitely part of the, um, you know, I mean, if, if you want to, if, want to be it's really period bleak. piece right well it is a period piece it's also uh if you want to be uh the blunt about it, it the whole part of the selling people their childhood back um, <laughs> yeah which, nostalgia still yeah absolutely and uh but you know they do it absolutely better than than almost anyone else has um and uh so you know it's it, they're very much playing on the popularity of just in the way that i think that maybe um back to the future you know was just pulling in all of these boomers who you know were seeing that 50s culture back on the big screen in a big big way and a lot of other 50s movies of that time um peggy sue got married and i don't know but it's oh, sure i mean happy um, days came out happy days the, absolutely yeah that was the 70s though but yeah. yeah i mean there was like a 50s resurgence in the yeah. 70s and 80s you're right yeah. And so I think you have to to, to do the math and, and say, yeah, you know, this is part of that kind of tradition. But um, the thing about the, 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 the fun thing about that is that um, they in that last season, they were able to do two amazing things for me. First of all, I think that they they did some um, some uh, first aid on the, the uh, Metallica's rep because. Yeah, I, I think that they've, you know, they've all they've they've had there was a lot of backlash after, you know, the whole um, Napster thing and whatever and years and years and years of that. It's like it's it's like not cool, you know, to be a Metallica fan among a lot of people you know, in a lot of certain crowds. And um, mm -hmm. even even though, you know, they're like McDonald's and they're never going away. They're still huge. They still have tons of fans. They're not unpopular, but just right. in, in any given crowd it will always feel like, oh, it's not cool. And after that came out, I felt like, okay, it's cool to be a Metallica fan again. <laughs> like, that's really cool. <laughs> Good, I, I like this. I can break out my Metallica t-shirt again. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and at the same time, they shined a spotlight on one of my favorite songs ever. Uh, and, and and one of uh, just, I think, uh, uh, an artist that has been very much overlooked, which is Kate Bush. Um, I, I mean, that is a song that like, it's like you never hear it if someone plays it there's always people go oh my god i love this song you know mm -hmm. and it's mm -hmm. oh, i forgot all about this song and and um now no one will ever forget about this song um i i i loved the way that they used it too because it's um i mean i won't go into too many spoilers people because it's not that old yet but um uh i love that they they brought it up as a piece of music that was very important to a character and you know it's it's like you, you really kind of attach it with her but it, they get it in your head early on in the season and then toward the end of the season there's a sequence where you you know because of a plot point you 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 feel you know that there's going to be a song that's going to come up and you don't know what song it's going to be because it all has to do with you know the kids psyches and you know the things that kind of uh anchor them to this world and things that they love and whatever which is really funny because it's kind of a metaphor for everyone watching it because it's all about nostalgia um but it's get and you're like i think it's going to be this song i think it will be i really do and then when it turns out to be you know that song again 
they, they end up playing it, you know, in its entirety, pretty much in a scene that is probably one of my fav- top three favorite scenes of television of all time. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's just incredible. Um, but, you know, as long as we're talking about music and Stranger Things, mm-hmm. I, you know, people talk about that a lot, of course, because the, that last season and the waves that it made. I just I just want to point out, um, I was blown away just the very first time I watched it from season one. I had been getting really into retro wave, which is like uh, Magic Sword, Carpenter Brute, you know, these like really um, weird Kavinsky, um, these really weird <laughs> like uh it's electronic music that's sort of inspired by i think a mixture of like 80s movies 80s video games and 80s music and pop culture and in a way that you know if you just say oh electronic music people think like i guess techno like no nothing like techno and when you hear it you're like oh this is really cool i like this and i've never shown it to anyone who didn't say like oh my god this sounds amazing this is really cool and the first thing you hear in stranger things is a theme song that is very rooted in, in retro wave it feels very retro wave and it's uh it's a it's it's perfect for that show and it's kind of permeates the whole the whole show so i love it very interesting well i'm going to move on to your last pick which is a film that i haven't seen so i can't chime in too much on this one so the lore from 2017 and i vaguely remember it's something to do with the mermaid so you're gonna have to take this one away by yourself here yeah so the the lure is uh one of the the horror movies that i've i've discovered i really kind of i was like which one should i talk because i almost i i almost brought up uh neon demon um, oh yeah i love that one but yeah, it's it's very it's, similar. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, but Neon Demon is the music, of course, is so important to it. But the thing about the lure is that it is um, it's a, uh, a movie about mermaids. Um, it is very, very uh, gory at times and extremely violent at times. Hmm. Uh, it is also a musical. <laughs> oh, it is. OK, well, I mean, there is the siren song, right? Exactly. And it it took me by surprise. Um, it's a Polish musical. And I'll tell you that the dialogue is so strange that I honestly like I legit like thought that I had maybe somehow like I had like the 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 some kind of like auto AI um like uh subtitles, you know, generated automatically generated oh, really? because <laughs> I was like, this, this doesn't this is like gibberish. And then I realized, no, the, the dialogue is just that weird. I, I would be interested if somebody like ever comes, you know, with a really great um, grasp on Polish and English comes back and, and maybe does a retranslation. It'd be interesting to see if it's any different. But it is just no, the, it's uh, like I, I'm just I'm just saying, like, if you really, really, uh, you know, maybe you stopped doing drugs a long time ago, but you just you want to you know get that feeling of doing dropping acid again and you don't. OK. Just watch the lure. Just watch the lure. I mean, all that's right. all you need to do. You, you will. You, it takes you into another universe where no logic applies anymore. Um, but it is a hauntingly beautiful film too. And it's, I, uh, I, I, I don't want to like go too much into it because it's so new that like a lot of you people probably haven't seen it. But I'm just telling you right now, um, if if you if you really like horror films where music is like key to the to the to the movie definitely check out the lore what kind of music is it uh like weird like i guess polish pop you know music 
Okay. And a little bit of like a little bit of hard rock here and there too. Um, very like uh, electronic stuff here and there. A lot of like beds of like electronic beats in the background and beautiful. Definitely watch that movie with a great sound system. Uh, All right. <laughs> yeah. That's going to put it on my list. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to close the show with my usual question. What is your own personal rock and roll nightmare? Uh, you know, I, I think it would be if like I woke up one day and found out that um, Kurt Cobain had had died all those years ago instead of Eddie Vedder. That would be such a nightmare. Wait. <laughs> Oh no. Am I living my <laughs> rock and roll? No, I'm just I kidding. Think you might be. Just kidding. Just kidding. Um <laughs> Yeah, um like like it's weird cuz when I read, read that question I'm thinking uh like um you know like a good good thing i'm like rock and roll nightmare sounds awesome like oh no you meant like something actually scary and awful but nothing scares me anymore cuz the horror movies we just des- desensitize ourselves to being scared so it's like that's one of the things as a horror filmmaker, everyone always asks you, what scares you? And I'm like, oh God, I don't know. I, yeah, nothing. Yeah, like running out of budget. I mean, I, <laughs> um, so yeah, like, uh, yeah, my, my, all, my rock and roll nightmare would probably just, um, you know, be getting to like finally see, um, let me think, who would be the band? Like, who would be the band? Maiden. Getting to see Iron Maiden, getting there with my ticket in hand. And showing up and like realizing that I grabbed the wrong piece of paper and I left it at home and then missing the whole concert. That that oh, would be that yeah. would be my rock and roll nightmare, honestly. Cue the sad trombone. <laughs> All right. So where can uh, listeners find and follow you online? Um. I, yeah. I don't do a whole lot online anymore, but uh, I, I'm at uh, at Stacy Davidson on Twitter. So you can always hit me up there if you have any questions. Um. And I'm probably get some about, hey, are you ever going to do a sequel to Sweatshop? Because we get that about every other day. Thank you for being on the show, Stacy. It was nice to catch up with you. Yes, absolutely. Loved it. Thank All you. right. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. This concludes another episode of the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. Remember, there's a book series, too. All the books are available in paperback, ebook, and audio via Amazon or the Rock and Roll Nightmares website. That's R O C K N R O L L Nightmares.com. Our official theme song is She's Out for Blood by Fuzzbuster, founded by Lars Cabot. Thank you for listening. Where she's by.